So how do I overcome failure? Reality is we all fail. We all make mistakes. And sometimes they're really bad. Every person in this room has messed it up. You've colored outside of the lines. You've disobeyed the Lord. You've done your own thing. And sometimes those failures are very, very, very bad. So we establish that we're all subject to fade. We're all subject to drift. And we're all subject to blow it. I'm just as capable of messing things up as you are. My tassel has not been turned. I haven't graduated. I don't have the diploma in hand that I'm perfect yet. I'm perfected in Christ positionally, but conditionally, day by day, it's an ongoing process. Come on. That's where we all live. Now, here's what I want you to hear. Sin seems so attractive and satisfying in the moment. Sin looks good. The lies of hell is, look at how much fun you could have. Uh, no one will ever know. You won't get caught. Everybody else is doing it. God is a forgiving God. Everything's going to be okay. And so we've established that the mission statement of heaven is Jesus says, I've come that you might have life. But the mission statement of hell is, I've come to steal, kill, and destroy. And so sin, straight from hell, looks so attractive in the moment. Sin fascinates. Then sin assassinates. Then sin dominates, and then sin eventually devastates. The progression is, look at how fascinating sin looks. Look at how much fun you could have. And it doesn't matter what age you are, whether you're 15, 20, 30, 50, 80, still the lies of hell. Satan don't have many new schemes that he's throwing at us. It's always going to be those lures to say, look, 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 you can do this. But once you become fascinated with sin and it assassinates and it begins to devastate your soul, it, 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 it's, going to, it's going to mess up your life. Sin is deceitful and entices the flesh. Sin is destructive. It erodes the soul, the thinking, the emotions, the will. It gets all out of line. Sin will be discovered. You will eventually be found out. And it might not be until you stand before God, but you're not going to get away from it. And that is a realization I had to come to. Everything is going to be exposed before God. Now, the majority of our issues come from self-centered decisions. The majority of the wounds and pain that we have in our life today are all self-inflicted wounds for the most part. Some of us sit here and we've been violated. Some of us sit here today and people have wronged us, but the deepest hurts usually inside of our lives are the result of self-inflicted wounds of things that we created. And a lot of us struggle with forgiving ourselves. A lot of us struggle with being able to move on. How could I do such a thing? So we make oftentimes choices that have 
irreversible consequences. And if we're not careful, we try to suppress them and sweep them under the rug as if they never happened. Second Samuel chapter 11, I want you to go there. It's a familiar text with some of us, but David had been anointed king. And in 1 Samuel 17, he takes on Goliath. In 1 Samuel 18, people are dancing and celebrating that we've got this new king in David and God's hands on David's life. And God is doing a lot of marvelous things in the life of David. And God uses David to write the majority of the Psalms that we read. A lot of beautiful things happen in this brother's life, but he experienced some incredible failure. Verse 1 of chapter 11, 2 Samuel says, Then it happened. I would encourage you to go ahead and just highlight, underscore, and circle that phrase, Then it happened. It happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab, his bloodthirsty nephew, and some servants. But David stayed at Jerusalem. When evening came, David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house, and from there he saw from his roof a woman bathing. She was very beautiful in appearance. David inquired about the woman. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messages and took her, messengers and took her, and when she came to him, David lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned home. Then the woman conceived and sent word to David and said, I am pregnant. I want you to pay attention to certain words here. Then it happened at the time of the year when kings go out to battle. David stayed. David arose. David walked. David saw. David inquired. David sent. Then David lay. Then it happened. And reality is, for most of us, I want you to get this. Reality is, for most of us, it's a slow fade. We start to open doors of fantasy and fascination. If we're not careful, we start to open these avenues and lanes and saying, oh, it's okay for me to drift here. And if you're not careful, you'll start to open up doors that Satan will walk in. You'll crack a window and Satan says, hey, I'm going to get a foothold in your life. Most of us don't start off by taking the woman's or taking the man's wife next door and then having her husband kill. It usually just don't start there. It's usually this slow fade of fascination with something. I'm okay. I can handle this. I can get by with this. One of the greatest traps the enemy uses today in our culture is social media. When you start to look at Facebook and Snapchat and some of these social media avenues, there's so much possibility for destruction to take place there. I'm not saying you shouldn't have social media, but you should be very wise in how you go about using social media. We've got these cell phones and smartphones that we can access pretty much any website domain from wherever we want to. You've got to be careful on watching your playgrounds and your playmates and your play toys. That 
phone is a tool, not a toy, and a lot of people use it as a toy, and you end up opening up doors, and then you start to be fascinated with some of the sin, some of the attraction, and it happens in our society. There, there's been so many marriages just disintegrate as a result of people getting on the social media thing, thinking they can hide and doing this little direct message thing, and you're like, nobody knows it. Yes, somebody knows it. You know it, and you know your God knows it, and we can't hide. And one of the things that happens in failure oftentimes is we think we, we can beat the system. A couple key things here, even when you look at the life of David, how, how did it happen? Why did he royally jack it up? Two simple, simple thoughts is be where you're supposed to be. Just be where you're supposed to be. You want to talk about eliminating a lot of traps and a lot of failures? If you're just where you're supposed to be, it eliminates much of that. In a few weeks, I'm going to break down some thoughts on the life of Samson. But Samson kept going over to Timnah and hanging out there. And it was all of these... Uh, vineyards and Samson was not supposed to drink and he's hanging out in Vegas. He was hanging out at Mardi Gras when God had told him to hang out in clean places that he could worship God and he opened up doors and it just was door after door in his life and it's the same way with us. All of us are subject to mess it up. Just be where you're supposed to be. It's funny, there's an app called Life 360 I don't know if you're familiar with that, but if you have kids, you might want to be familiar with that. But on my son Jesse's phone, he's 18 years old. On my daughter Hannah's phone, who's 14 years old, they have their Life360 app downloaded. Barb and I have it on our phones. And so at any time, I can pull up Life360 app, and I can tell you pretty much exactly where Jesse is. People say, well, that's a violation of property. That's a violation of privacy. When I pay the stinking bill, I will decide what violations look like. Now, that Life360 app was working real well because I can even look at it, and it will tell me how fast he's driving. And that was a real good thing until my daughter Hannah thought that she could also police Jesse and tell him that he was breaking the speed limit which we eliminated her ability to see Jesse because it ain't her business, it's mom and dad's. But you know what? I tell them, it's on my phone. You can see how fast I'm going. You can see where I'm at. I, I'm not going to turn my phone off. My wife has permission to pick up my phone 24-7. She can see whatever emails are coming in. If there's something private, sensitive, that I'm working through an issue with someone, you, you can't see that one. Here's what I'm dealing with there. It's a confidential issue. But just be where you're supposed to be. You want to eliminate some of the failures and some of the, the catastrophes that happen? Just be where you're supposed to be. The second thing is just do what you're supposed to do. David, you're supposed to be out Fighting battles, you're a king. You're supposed to be leading men. You've sent your bloodthirsty nephew, Joab, to go do it. Just do what you're supposed to do. I share with our staff all the time, and I want you to hear this loud and clear. I get paid to do one thing here. 
I get paid to do one thing. I don't get paid to preach. I don't get paid to counsel. I, I don't get paid to oversee staff. I get paid to do one thing. I get paid to be responsible. When you're responsible with certain assignments, more doors and opportunity open up. Now, I do preach and I do counsel and I do lead a staff, but I, I'm paid just to be responsible. And when you do what you're supposed to do, it eliminates a lot of pitfalls in your life. And a lot of people open up the door for failure when they're not doing what they're supposed to do. What, what, what are you doing? I was supposed to be studying. Oh, but what were you doing? I was smoking dope. Or what were you doing? Oh, I, I was on a porn site. What were you doing? This is what you were supposed to be doing, but what were you doing? And when you start to open those doors, I'm telling you, the consequences at times through choices can be irreversible. They can carry weight for the rest of your life. I wrote in my notes that we're fools when we think that the rules apply to everybody else except me. That's a fool. The rules apply to everybody else except me. Or we become fools when we think that would never happen to me. No, it, it can happen to any of us. You open up the doors and see what happens. So David takes Bathsheba, lays with her. She's now pregnant. He has Uriah killed. Then you pick it up in 2 Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet. Nathan said, thus says the Lord, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I would have added so many more things like this to you. I would have blessed you so much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? David, the scripture also says that the sword will never depart from your house. Based on what you've done, there's going to be chaos and corruption and disruption for years to come, David. You've done what is evil in the sight of God. Then David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, this is where we start to move into a healthy direction. It's not if you're going to blow it at times. It's what are you going to do after you've jacked it up? David was a man after God's own heart. Acts even says that about him. Look at David. And people will say, how was he a man after God's own heart when he did what he did? Because he drifted, he faded. But we'll get to it in a bit. David, he, he responded to his failure in a godly way. And if we look at the life of David in Scripture, I think it's there for multiple reasons. But if he's subject to blow it, we have to stop and go, so am I. If he can blow it, so can I. None of us should be so arrogant to think that sin and royally jacking it up is beyond us. We're all capable. And we need God's constant intervention in our life 24-7. It can be all kinds of stuff that we open the door to. Now, Paul David Tripp, I like reading him. I follow him on Twitter. Paul David Tripp has written a lot of cool things over the years. But listen to what he said. He said, our lives are not a series. Listen, listen, listen. 
I want you to get this. He said, our lives, they're not a series of big dramatic moments. We don't bounce from big decision to big decision. We live in an ongoing series of little moments. The character of our life isn't marked by 10 big moments. The character of our life is established by 10,000 little moments of everyday life. The themes and struggles that emerge from those little moments reveal what's really going on inside of our hearts. Every little decision, every choice, everything that we do is contributing to who we're becoming. People go, man, I need prayer. I've got a big decision. Every decision you make is a big decision. Now, some of them carry a lot of weight, but every decision, every choice, Every time that I choose something, it counts. It counts what I watch, what I eat, what I listen to, who I hang out with. Every choice. My dad told me in high school, I wanted to play ball so bad. I wanted to play baseball so bad. I really, really did. He told me in high school, one of my buddies that I had been hanging out with since we were 10 years old. We'd played all-stars together and all this stuff. But this dude got to where he was smoking dope and drinking and was very sexually active. And my dad pulled me aside. And this buddy of mine, his mom and dad were divorced and he didn't have two strong parents in his life. But I'll never forget the old man looking at me saying, you hang around dogs, you will definitely get fleas on you. He said, son, you've got to pay attention to who you're hanging out with. That stuck with me. As a 15-year-old dude, now I'm 54 years old. Who are you hanging out with? Where are you going? What are you doing? And when I signed to play college ball, he looked at me and said, as long as you bust your butt every day, as long as you give it everything you've got, I'll do everything I can to help support you. We don't get to where we're at by ourselves. There's got to be other people believing in us at times. And as I went through four years of college, back then there was no Title IX. I was on full scholarship, which was a blessing. And then I was able to sign to play professional ball. I still hung on to that 15-year-old statement my dad made to me. You hang out with dogs, you're going to get fleas on you. Where are you going? What are you wanting to do with your life? Every choice that you make is carrying weight. Now, Listen, get this, get this. Repentance and transformation happens. Repentance, I don't care where you're at today. Repentance and transformation can happen in your life today. I want to give you five thoughts here. Ricky, you know this as well as anybody. How these first three work, I'm not really sure. But they all work together. You've got to reach a place in your life where you're disgusted with yourself. You've got to be sick of your sin. People will oftentimes say, well, you've got to hit rock bottom. Rock bottom for some people is death. Rock bottom in its purest definition for me is I'm sick and tired of being sick. I'm disturbed. I'm messed up. I'm jacked up. I'm wasted. I'm sick. I am so disgusted with me which implies I reach a place where I'm so disgusted with me that I know that any man-made strategy, solution, and agenda that I or anybody else can come up with is not going to work. It's not going to work. 
So I'm disgusted. Then there has to be this second element where it says I'm desperate to know God. I want to know God for who he is. When I surrendered to Christ in October of 1985, I wanted to know God. It wasn't at 13 praying some prayer, so I thought that I could escape hell. Some of y'all have done that. I'm going to pray this prayer where I don't have to go to hell. That's not the gospel according to Jesus. I want you to have life. I want you to know me. There has to be this desperation of the soul to say, I want to know God. I want to know who he is. I want to know his character. I want to know his salvation, the sanctification. I want to know this holiness of God. I've got to know God. And then this third piece, there has to be this disclosure of your sin and your hidden secrets. God hates secrets. So, so many of us have reached that place where we're sick of being sick and we're like, I, I, I've, got, I've got to move, man. I'm disgusted with me. I want to know God. But for a lot of us, we're trying to hide all this stuff. And he says, you, you got to disclose it. That's the reason he says, confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. I'm not saying you broadcast it out on Highway 81. We don't put it on the, the little signboard for everybody to see. But when you're sitting down with people that you're close to and you have intimate communion with, Greg Chup, dude, we've got to be willing to move there to say, hey, here's some junk I'm working through. Thank you. Because Satan will continue to keep a stronghold on your life as long as you think you can hold on to your little secrets. And people die in stable misery, Caleb. They will die there, buddy. When these three things happen, don't miss it. When these three things happen, then and only then can you submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. He tells us to submit. He tells us to surrender. When do I submit to the lordship? Lord meaning master, authority, and ruler. It's when I work through disgust, this desperation and disclosure. Then and only then can I submit. I'm not holding on anything. I'm not hiding anything. I'm not even ashamed of it anymore. I did it. It's me. You got, you got him. And if that happens, you can then subject yourself to other members of the body of Christ. You can start to live in authentic fellowship and relationship with other people. God wants us to do life with the body of believers, the bride of Christ under the leadership and lordship. But when you blow it, and you will mess it up, you've got to be disgusted, you've got to be desperate, and you've got to be willing to disclose, here's my area. Here's my junk I'm still working through. Hebrews chapter 4, nothing in all of creation can hide from him. Nothing in all of creation can hide. Everything is nude and exposed before his very eyes. This is the God to whom we must explain all that we've done. It was this fear and reverence of God saying, I'm going to give an account. He already sees what I'm doing. Man may try to hide and cover and conceal, and God goes, I see it. N nothing can hide from me. But he wasn't this cosmic sheriff that was wanting to blow me up and kill me. He was this gracious Father who had arms extended to the prodigal coming out of the far country saying, there's bread enough and a spare here at my house. I want you to hang with me. 
I want you to get well. I want you to heal. Now, listen, listen. As human beings, and as sinful human beings at times, we tend to buy in, Dan, to two dangerous lies. There's two dangerous lies. The lie of autonomy. I am an independent human being with the right to live my life ever how I want to. That's reckless. That's rebellious. But I've had people look me in my eyes and say, who are you to tell me how to live my life? Well, who does God think he is to tell me how to live my life? I can do whatever I want to do. Really? Okay. But the second lie is the lie of self-sufficiency. I have everything I need. I don't need anything else. Those are two crippling lies. That's the reason even when Jesus says, you know, it's really tough for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a richer man even to enter the kingdom because you can get so self-sufficient going, I got everything I need. I don't need anything else. And a lot of people miss God. But I would say this loud and clear, stop the madness before you self-destruct. If you've got people in your life that are living the lie of autonomy or the lie of self-sufficiency, tell them, stop it. You're not promised another breath. You don't, you don't know how long you're going to be here. Your God loves you. Your God wants you to live above average. Your God's come that you can have life. Stop, stop it. Stop the madness. There's a God that made you. There's a God that loves you. There's a God that's pursuing you. There's a God that wants to give you life. As a believer, when you sin, confess it and address it immediately. Don't cover it. Authentic repentance is just four simple things, but listen to this. When you look at people that go, they repented, which means repent means to change your source is my definition. Repentance means you're plugged into something to give you love, acceptance, worth, meaning, value. When I repent, I'm unplugging. Godly sorrow leads to proper God-style repentance, and I'm plugging into Jesus to get my needs met. I'm unplugging from anything outside of Christ. That's repentance. People say, well, it's a, doing a 180. Doesn't carry enough weight for me. I'm unplugging. I've got to unplug from this junk. When authentic repentance happens, you will see people address and confess sin completely. This is, this is where I'm at. I'm addressing it. I'm confessing it. I'm not suppressing it. Second thing is, you will see that person start to rely on God's mercy and grace. God, I've got to have your mercy. I've got to have your grace. I've got to have you. I can't rely on my merits. My righteousness is like filthy rags. God, I've got to have it. A person who authentically repents will admit that punishment is deserved for what they've done. I deserve to be punished. I deserve to be disciplined. I deserve to spend eternity separated from you, God, in a place called hell. Look at my sin. And he goes, I count it against you no more. Though your sins were as scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow. But something inside of the, the broken, repentant man goes, I deserve eternal damnation. And then 
A person who's truly repented will look and go, I understand that I have created collateral damage that others are suffering, suffering from. I've jacked it up. So what I did not only impacted my life and hurt my life, but look at the debris around me. I've hurt so many other people. And I want to go get that right with these other people. I want to do everything I can to live at peace with all men. Now, I'm going to wrap it with this. I'm going to jog through it quick, but just on your own, go through it. Please, please go through it. Psalm 51 is David's cry and prayer based on what we read in 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12. But there's four key things I want you to get. As a guy breaks, as a, as a gal breaks, as there's repentance. Listen, listen to this. In Psalm 51, the first six verses is all about David's confession and his repentance. Get it. God, have mercy on me. God, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only, God, have I sinned. David stops and says, I know, I need your mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy is the compassion of God being extended to those who are living in misery. I need mercy every day. I need the compassion of God extended to me because I've lived in misery. There's three words, transgression, which means I know that I have broken your divine law. God, you're a you're a good God, and the law is there for my protection, not to prevent me from enjoying life. I've broken your divine law, transgression. That's what that word means. You'll see transgression and iniquity and sin mentioned here. All of them are carrying different weight to it. And David goes, I've broken your divine law. I've missed, I've missed it. Second thing is, uh, he says, my iniquity Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. What he's saying is, I know deep down inside my very nature is perverted and twisted. When I'm left to do things on my own through my own flesh patterns and trust my own nature, I'm perverted and twisted. That's right. The heart is deceitfully wicked and sick. Who can understand it? And then he says, sin which means I've fallen short, I've missed the mark of your perfection of holiness. God, I, I, I'm, I'm confessing and I'm repenting, I've jacked it up. Come on. This is how we respond to failure. This is how we overcome failure. We can never do it in our own strength. And then he moves into this cleansing and restoration statement. He goes, purify me and I will be clean. Wash me. Blot out, wipe out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a, a right, steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. What is he saying? What's he saying? When we really break and repent, what he's saying is, God, would you please deal with me according to who you are and not according to what I've done? Man, when we get there and we realize that our Heavenly Father is so loving. He's agape, agapea, unconditional, sacrificial love. And we get there and we go, he deals with us according to his character, not according to our conduct. 
Even when I'm faithless, God remains faithful because he can't deny who he is. God, I come to you and I'm asking you to cleanse me according to who you are. Oh, we're starting to respond to failure in the right way. God wants us to overcome failure. And then David moves into this time of consecration and dedication of his heart, consecrating, uh, of yielding his heart back into connection with God. And he goes, Lord, if you'll clean me and create this new heart and renew this right spirit, I'll teach transgressors your ways. Lord, if you renew me and if you'll restore me, I'm going to go tell everybody else I can about you. Sinners will return to you. Deliver me, O God. My tongue will sing loud of your righteousness. When we get into a hallelujah anthem, I'll sing loud. I don't care if anybody else likes my tone because you have changed my heart and you deserve my worship. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. God, 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 if you change me, if you restore me, I, I promise you, I'm not sitting on the sideline. I'm in the game. I, I'm in. So no matter where God has you, I'm going to declare his praises. I'm going to tell people he's good. I'm going to tell them he's God. If they ridicule, reject, criticize, and condemn me, they already did it to him. I'm going to tell them, hey, he's good. He's what you're looking for. He's what you're longing for. He's what you're wanting. We're going to baptize here in a bit. We've got three we're baptizing in the first service, a couple in the second. But, but my buddy who came to faith 21 years ago when I was speaking at a conference in California, God radically rocked this dude. Radically rocked him. And his dad, the old man, came to faith in Christ about six weeks ago, drove up here from Florida, repenting. I got to know God. His dad's driving up again today. My buddy's driving over from Auburn. He's going to baptize his dad today. His dad don't even know it. He thinks I'm doing it. I'm like, no, your boy's doing it. Benji's out there living out his faith as a minor league baseball guy with the Kansas City Royals. And he meets this kid, Ash. And him and Ash start spending time. And Ash looks and says, Tim, I told you last year I know God. I don't know God. I know about him. Benji knows God. I want to know that God that Benji knows. And Benji's going to baptize Ash in the second service as well. Because he's out there living out his faith going, if you'll change me, I promise you when I see other transgressors, those who are willfully breaking your law, those sinners, those living in iniquity, I, I'm going to tell them how good you are. I'm going to tell them. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell them. I got an 8.30 flight tonight. I'll be doing ministry in Arizona all this week. It's going to be a long day. Get there about 12.40 Eastern time. Figure it out. But God's got teed up opportunities waiting Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Whether it be at the airport. I'm praying for 4A. I don't know who 4A is, but I'm praying for 4A, baby. 
because I'm in 4B. I don't know who he is, but God is saying, declare my praises. You tell them what they're looking for. And then David closes by saying, the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. A broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. Contrition, contrition, contrition. The ability to remember the pain of my wreckage without allowing the enemy to replay the videos of it. I, I know all this jacked up stuff I've done, and I'm contrite, meaning I've got the ability to remember the pain of all my junk, but I'm not going to go back and replay the video because I'm a clean saint, child of God, forgiven, walking in the Spirit, freed up. <laughs> Psalm 51, you got to get it. How do I overcome failure? I, I, I deal with it thoroughly when it comes to my sin. I confess it. I don't suppress it. I address it. I run to God. I lift up my eyes and run to him. And I confess and I receive his cleansing, which allows my heart then to become consecrated as I walk in contrition saying, I'm going to tell people about you. You've done too much for me. You're too good. You're too good. 